If Luther considered Galatians to be his Katie Von Borer, then I aim to follow in the footsteps of the reformer and say that Hebrews is my Elizabeth Ann Guest, my own epistle. It was through the book of Hebrews that the Holy Spirit opened up my eyes to see the light of the beauty and glory of Jesus in one of the darkest moments of my life. Prior to this experience, I would have told you that Jesus was Lord. I would have had words to say that he was Savior, but I did not have a category then to say that he was at that moment and is now beautiful and glorious. If Hebrews could be likened to a song that never grows old, the chorus that repeats over and over is that there is no one like Jesus. He indeed is better than anything that our souls might be tempted to turn to. I find Hebrews to be a perennial fount that never runs dry, both for my soul in need of fresh glimpses of the bright superiority of the sun, and also for my work as a pastor who is tasked to keep my people's face in Jesus's face, come what may. It also finds itself to be a perennial fount as my work as a preacher, who aims to use words that exhort my people to obey with our passage calls for in every single season of their life. It is a joy to preach on a text that I love from this beloved book. In it, we will see one of the rich metaphors given us that illustrates the Christian life, that of a race, where there's a beginning and where there's an end, where there are obstacles and hardships and where there is a requirement that's needed to finish, and stunningly, where there is a reward for us at the end. So let me read the text for us this morning and pray for the Spirit to minister a word to your hearts that specifically is what is needed for you for the stretch of the race that you are running in this season in your life. I invite you to turn with me and read from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Therefore, since we are so surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why don't you pray with me? Father, it is a joy to be here with brothers and sisters who sing by your grace to, the, to your glory. I pray that you would grant us help this morning to see wonderful things out of your word. And that the Spirit of God would be at work ministering a specific word to each heart in this place that are all running the race that is set before us by your providential design. Magnify yourself this morning, Father, by the preaching of your word and grant us much grace in both hearing and obeying. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our text, as you can see, is a conclusion of an argument that contains two exhortations for us to pay very close attention to. Stated differently, our text naturally flows from the arguments that proceed from it. It gives us the so what. 
This is why the word therefore is the first word of our text. In fact, therefore plays double duty by looking back on what has been said and forward on what should be done in response. What the word therefore confronts us with is that the two logical reasons that are unpacked in this text are the most obvious actions that we can take if we have understood the argument properly. To do anything otherwise or to go against the grain of the text's exhortations is the most illogical thing that you can do. I want you to look at your Bible and make note of these two exhortations. We are to run with endurance the race that is set before us in verse number one. And we are to consider the person who looms large over this book from the very first word to the very last word in this letter. In order for these two exhortations to land on us with the weight that they deserve, let's take some time to take a few steps back and see why these exhortations naturally follow the exposition that has come before us. While only God knows who the author of Hebrews was, I like to call him pastor because in this sermonic letter, we see the work of a pastor being done. We see a shepherd hard at work feeding his flock with exposition and exhortation, with explanation and encouragement for his people to respond properly. We see a pastoral figure shepherding his flock to feed on the lush green pastures of Jesus. Why? Like how one person put it, their Christology was too shallow to inspire endurance. They needed the nourishment of Christ to overcome the fatigue that was screaming at the top of their, its lungs for them to drop out the race, to quit, to run for the sidelines instead of the finish line, to turn back to the life where they knew before coming to Christ. And here we have a sermonic letter that's comprised of 13 chapters of a pastor preaching to his people that Jesus is better than anything that their discouragement would tempt them to turn to. Therefore, they ought to persevere and press onto the very end and not give up. They must see to it that they don't quit and neglect such a great salvation. This is what the text said back then. And this is what the text says to us today. Pay close attention to the pastor's methodology. From the gate, starting in chapter one, he paints faith-feeding pictures of Jesus that strengthens tired hands, weak knees, and depleted hearts. And the same is the case for our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, going into verse number four, fits within a larger movement in the book that actually starts in chapter 10, verse number 19, and goes all the way to chapter 12, verse number 29. So if you are making notes, the brackets that you're thinking of is chapter 10, 19 through 12, 29, and our text fits in that passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19, if we were to look at it, it begins like our text does this morning with the word, therefore. So what we see is that our text is part of a larger exhortation that comes off of the heels of an expositional argument. For us underneath this word this morning, and who have the honor to preach and the responsibility to hone in on our hermeneutical and, and homiletical skills, we should pay close attention to how the pastor of Hebrews does it here. I heard one pastor give his fellow shepherds this encouragement. 
It would help every preacher, he said, in crafting his persuasive argument called a sermon if he would ask and answer what is the point that's arising from the text that he wants to persuade his listeners to believe and act on. The expositional point that the pastor of Hebrews has been making up into this section in order to persuade his people is that Jesus is better. And the pastor comes with his receipts. Jesus is God's better word. In fact, he is the best and final word. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus as the son of God's house is better than even the towering figure of Moses who was a servant in God's house. Jesus who provides true rest is better than Joshua. Jesus is a better high priest compared to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a high priest of a better covenant with better promises because not only did he offer for all time a single sacrifice of sins and sat down, he himself was the better single sacrifice, which perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The argument, goes, the argument going into the block of text where our exhortation lies is that Jesus is not just a high priest, but he is a better, great high priest. We see the author is working hard for his people to not only feel the weight of the majesty of their better, great high priest, but also with 10 toes down, feel the firmness of all grounds that his exhortation is going to run on. The greatness of this better high priest demands a response. Hence, we get an exhortation. There indeed is no other place to go but exhortation after such an argument concerning the superiority of Christ was made. Jesus is better than anything that you can turn back to. Therefore, the logical exhortation to you is to persevere, to endure through the difficult terrain that you are running through. In this block of text, chapter 10, verses 19 through chapter 12, 29, we get a glimpse of why such an exhortation to endure was needed in the first place. Now, it's been said it's not how you start, but it's how you finish. I like to say, well, I guess that depends on how you started. If you started badly, then yes, aim to finish well and strong. But it does seem to matter how you start. And the author reminds his audience that they started, off, they started out pretty well. Look at chapter 10, verse number 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when you began the race, when you came to Christ, you endured. This is a key idea in this section that speaks to the ability to bear up under the face of difficulty, the weight of difficulty and struggle, struggle, words like fortitude and steadfastness and endurance and perseverance come to mind. You endured, the text says, a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew something you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding hope, an abiding one. Look at how the pastor stirred up their memory. Remember how the strong legs of your faith ran with endurance when you first came to Christ? You ran well. Apparently, the author's audience was going through something that was so challenging, that was so draining and so discouraging that they were in danger of giving up that they were ready to call it quits. 
that they were close to dropping out of the race that they started with such vigor and such endurance. And make no mistake, quitting for them came in the temptation to turn from the better one to that which was lesser, to turn from the truly green grass of Christ to the grass that looked green, but only because it was spray painted green. The pressure was on to go back to their former life where it wasn't this hard, where it wasn't this painful, where there wasn't this level and longevity of suffering. One person put it like this, the congregation to which Hebrews is addressed is quite simply exhausted. They are tired, not from their daily labor or from strains of normal life. No, theirs is a fatigue of faith. That is a striking phrase here, a fatigue of faith. Have you been there before, brothers and sisters? Has some stretch of the race of your Christian life been so difficult that you seriously considered, you seriously wrestled with leaving Jesus behind by deconstructing your faith in order to reconstruct it with him out of the picture? Have you tasted of this type of tiredness before? Have you been so fatigued in faith that all you can think about is an exit strategy to get out the race? Have you been there before? Amen. I have it. I have it. And sometimes, if I'm honest, that scares me. To date, I have not hit a stretch of the race that has led me through a trial where the voice of faith is drowned out by the screams of apostasy and unbelief demanding me to quit. What do you do when your past life outside of Christ looks much better, much easier than your present life in Christ? I wonder if some of you are like me in this matter. What do you do in the day when you are tempted to take your eyes off of the prize and put them on your past? What will you do when you enter a hard stretch in the race where temptation beckons you? to fall into company with the description of the devastating words of John 6, verse number 66. You know what it says there? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, this section of Hebrews is not just for the saints today with weakened knees and drooping hands and exhausted legs and a depleted heart on the brink of walking away from Jesus. This sermonic letter was not just written for those who feel like they want to quit now. It is also written for those who will feel the temptation to quit in the future. In that day, during that agonizing stretch of the contest, going to need to see what the pastor did here to encourage faithful endurance through the inevitable trials of the race. But there's more. Not only did he remind them that at one point they ran well, he also reminded them that they come from a family of runners who have run well in the past to the very end. 
These runners stand as an example for current endurance. Look at chapter 10, verse number 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, uh, the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, If she turns away, if you cut and if you run, if you give up, listen to these words clearly, my soul has no pleasure in him. That should be the nightmare of our lives, brothers and sisters. Not that we might lose our life, but we might lose his pleasure. But the text gives us a contrast and an emphasis. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Who are these people the pastor has in mind? Well, the answer takes us to one of the most famous passages of scripture that depict what one person calls the heroes who endured by faith. I like to call them champion runners. Oh, the book of Hebrews is a preacher's toolkit. In chapter 11, we see once again the shepherd hard at work for his flock, this time pulling out of his toolbox a rhetorical technique of his day. And this was not to display his oratorical elegance as if his aim was to highlight his own greatness. His object was to display the greatness of another, the one who his people needed to see eyes needed to feast upon. My young and upcoming preachers in here, I want you to get this down in your bones. Your people have zero need of being captivated with you. They need to be captivated with him. The use of this rhetorical technique was the shepherd's crook for the good of his people, and it is called an encomium. It's a unique use of words for an intended end. And we see that the pastor uses this tool all the way from Hebrews chapter 11 down to Hebrews chapter 12, verse number four. Leland Riken defines an encomium as a work of literature that's written in praise of someone or in praise of something like a trait or or quality or even a characteristic. It's a list of examples that highlights for us something or someone that's worthy of praise and also worthy of our imitation. The subject being praised in Hebrews chapter 11 becomes evident through repetition. If we were part of the original audience hearing this sermon given to us, we would have heard the word faith over 20 times. Faith defined here is confidence in what we have hoped for. How can such a faith be so confident, one might ask? Faith's confidence rests on the character of the one who is promised. Numbers chapter 23, verse number 19, it says this, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The entirety of the scriptural witness is the fact that God will do what he says he will do. Faith believes in this type of God, so confidence is quite appropriate. Faith is the assurance, the text says us, the proof for what we do not see. Somebody might ask, how can faith have such an assurance? Because you can take God's promises to the bank, brothers and sisters. Faith is not only appropriate, it's also commendable. 
and it's backed by divine approval. Look at chapter Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11, verse number two through three. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation from God. And this is one of the most right realities in all of the universe, is it not? God-centered faith is commendable because it rightly honors the character of the one who will keep his word, even if it looks like he won't keep his word. Breaking news here, brothers and sisters. God approves faith, right? The sheer importance of the praiseworthy subject of faith in Hebrews 11 is underlined in verse number six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The shepherd's goal was to usher his flock through the halls of redemptive history for fresh encouragement to demonstrate the same commendable and enduring faith in their race. Here's how one person explains what encomiums were meant to accomplish. The goal is to draw on past examples of faith, to encourage similar faithfulness as well as to create a solidarity with those who have gone before. In other words, the pastor first reminded his folks that they ran well in the beginning. And second, he reminded them that they come from a family of runners. Running well and enduring by faith to the end is in their blood. It is stitched inside of their DNA. They are to remember the example of the Old Testament saints and they are to emulate their faith. The runners of old are not fundamentally there to see how we are doing as much as to be the ones that we look to as we run our race to see how they do it, especially when the race gets tough. Taking my cue from Hebrews 11 verse 32, time would fail in this chapel service to tell of the commendable Enduring faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the people who crossed the Red Sea, who saw the walls of Jericho bite the dust of Rahab, the prostitute that ended up in the genealogy of Christ, of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and of the prophets. Time would fail. Time would fail to tell those who, through faith, conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. The text goes on to say, by faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment by faith. By faith, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you get a glimpse into how appropriate it is for our verse to start off with the word, therefore? 
coming off of an expositional argument that persuaded his audience of the superiority of Jesus. The pastor exhorts his audience to endure by reminding them that not only have they run well by faith in the past, they are of those who have run well by faith to the very end. So now in chapter 12, verse number 31, therefore drops that much harder. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Think quantitatively first. Since we are surrounded by so many witnesses, think qualitatively. The quality of their witness is the Gatorade that quenches the thirst of fatigued faith. This great cloud of witnesses actively testifies to the fact that faith's right object is God who is faithful to his promises. And they testify to the fact that God commends this type of enduring faith. What we have here is a double witness. The great cloud witnesses to the faithful promise keeping God and the promise keep, the promise faith keeping God witnesses to their commendability of faith. Let us strive for such a commendation. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we who, uh, who testify of our God's faithfulness and his commendation of faith, by faith, let us run then with endurance. Let us run with the capacity to bear up under the difficulty of the race, especially when our good and wise father providentially sets a hard stretch before us. The exhortation to run with endurance underscores the reality that the race called the Christian life is not a sprint, but a marathon with many stretches of varying difficulty. The marathon, the race set before us highlights the providential sovereignty of our good and wise father who designs the course of your race for your good and for his glory. Both the joyful parts of the race and with trepidation, I say also the difficult parts. There's a question that leaps out from this text, and I wonder if you are asking it this morning. This question reminds me of a track meet that I ran in in high school back in the day. I was a sprinter, and my races were the 100, the 4 by 100, and the 200-meter race. My task was to get into the runner's block and get it over with quickly, and then sit down, and watch the weird, weird ones running the longer races like the 3,200-meter race. No thank you, not my race. One track meet, my coach asked me to run a race that one of my teammates didn't show up for. It was the 400-meter race. Now, I never ran the 400-meter race before, and I never paid attention to actually anyone who did. I calculated the race in my mind. The 400-meter race is one time around the track, all it is, Dr. Allen, is four 100s or two 200s. That's it. I turn to my coach with all the confidence in the world and says, I got this, coach. I got you. I didn't ask for any advice, and he didn't give any, me any instructions. When it came time to the race to start, I confidently get into the runner's block, I, and at the sound of the gun, I shoot out in a dead sprint like I'm running the 100 meter race. To my surprise, I didn't see anybody in front of me. I didn't see anybody next to me. Everybody was behind me and I was in first place. 
And probably at that point in the race, I had a scholarship, a track scholarship to every prestigious track school in the country at that moment. Still doing pretty good during the 200 meter part of the race since I was used to that. But Dr. Allen, something happened to my legs around the 250 meter mark. I started hearing footsteps and I stopped feeling my legs. My D1 scholarship was running past me as I moved from first place to second place, to third place, to fourth place, to fifth place. You understand where I'm going. What started out with such promise ended with great disappointment of being in last place and having a hurt ego. What I realized was that the 400 meter race involves strategy and, the ne and I never took the time to ask the question that arises from our text, how do you run this race? I see where to run with endurance the race that's providentially set before us, but how? What's beautiful about our text is that not only do we see the logical exhortation to run the race of this Christian life, but also that the pastoral writer supplies the answer to the next national natural question. He tells us how we are to run this race, especially when the race that is providentially set before us is beset with difficulties that clamor for you to stop, clamor for you to quit. How are we to run with endurance the race that is set before us when it gets hard? And our text tells us in two ways. It says, one, let us lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. Word is it that back in the time of this letter, Greek runners would basically run in their birthday suit. The runners would arrive to the stadium with colorful robes on, maybe like a boxer would in our day, but would, of course, discard these robes for the race. Why? Because the runner needed to be unencumbered. Any weight would potentially hinder his goal of winning the race. This leads to a necessary question for you to ponder and for you to ask your fellow brothers and sisters that you do life with. What weight do you need to lay aside that hinders the race called the Christian life. What's strategic about this verse is that it doesn't specify any particular weight. In other words, the message is whatever gets in your way, whatever hinders your running, as a strategy to run the race that's set before you with endurance, brothers and sisters, lay it aside. Maybe it's too much time and energy spent on your social media accounts. Tied up with TikTok, doom scrolling on Twitter, consuming empty calories of Instagram. Maybe it's an unhealthy attachment to your political affiliation that either has you euphorically excited this morning or down in the dumps based on the results last night. What if it's a relationship that's not bad, but it's just, it's just getting in the way? Or fixation on how you're perceived among a community of people whose opinion you covet and value. Weights can be good things in and of themselves, like the hours you put in at your job or your Greek paradigms or research for a scholarly journal or habits or hobbies. They aren't wrong, but given too much time and too much attention and too much focus, it hinders your race. Brothers and sisters, you know the weight that is hindering you this morning. Get with another brother and sister and strategize of ways to lay it aside. Not because it's inherently wrong, but because it is getting in the way. We're also to lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us. Better stated, the sin that, that so easily entangles and distracts. Here too, sin is left undefined. 
Maybe for you it's the sin of pride and all of its ugly manifestations from demanding your sovereign way to not being willing to consider the ways of others. What we might call big sins may come to mind readily, but don't forget about what George Bridges calls the respectable sins like discontentment and unthankfulness and selfishness. Maybe it's you're too quickly irritated and you are judgmental. What does sin, what sin in your life easily distracts and entangles you when the race gets hard? It's of strategic importance to lay aside that sin that so easily trips you up and distracts you because this is how you run the race that's set before you. Get with a brother or sister and strategize of ways to lay it aside because sin doesn't simply encumber us. Sin seeks to kill us and to abort the race itself. Here we come to the main means of running the race, though. Look at it with me in your text. I want you to underline it, highlight it, circle it, put some stars around it. Make sure it's prominent in your book. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of faith. This is no simple glance that we are talking of here. No simple brief look. How are we to run with endurance the race set before us? Fix your eyes. Direct your attention without distraction. Lock in. Fasten your attention on Jesus. And oh, would you make good use of your time, brothers and sisters, to ponder on how he is described here in this text. First, it is Jesus who, whose use of his name, his personal name here, highlights his humanity as the one who since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things and was made like his brothers in every respect apart from sin. Fix your eyes on the one who knows what you are going through because he himself suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's more to see here. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I've always read this as Jesus is the one who initiates and completes our faith. Thanks be to God that that is the case. It seems to me like the context of the great cloud of witnesses here, Jesus stands forth as the greatest example, the greatest witness of endurance. He is the leader and the pioneer of faith as a superior example for us. He is the perfecter of faith and that he brought enduring faith to his perfect conclusion, which looks like him sitting down at the right hand throne of God. I like how one person put it with a different nuance. Let us run with endurance the race set before us with our eyes locked on Jesus, the champion in the exercise of faith and the one who brought faith to complete expression. I love that. Look at the champ, brothers and sisters, because in him, we see the encomium list of Hebrews 11. We see how it's intended to work by giving us the greatest model that we can have of enduring faith. The many examples of those who run by faith, they culminate in the supreme example of Jesus, who is the better runner. Look at the better runner, Jesus, who prevailed in his own race by enduring. Text tells us, it says, here's a picture of his endurance. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising and disregarding the shame. He is the unsurpassed perfecter of faith. 
which is seen in his current position. Jesus is seated now at this moment at the right hand of the throne of God as the bodily fulfillment of Psalm 110. We have an enthroned and an exalted superior runner on the throne who is ready to help all those whose eyes stay locked on him as they run their race in faith. I say eyes locked because this is the picture that we have in mind. To run your race looking to Jesus is to look away from your immediate circumstances, to look away from the weights that hinder you and the distractions of sin and look to the one who gives grace to emulate his endurance and all by considering his example of faithfulness. Our high priest has sat down since he finished his work and accomplished the task that he was sent to do. He didn't falter. He didn't turn back. He didn't give up. He didn't abandon his mission. The pastor's prescription for endurance is Jesus's own faithfulness to endure to the end and to receive the prize that is for him. Now, by this grace, go, brothers and sisters, and do likewise. Someone might ask, what is our prize? Jesus is our prize. He is the better wreath we get once the race is done. Keep your eyes locked on the prize who is the captain of your salvation, who is our example, and who is our very reward. This pastor is doing the quintessential work of a shepherd, which is to keep his people's face in Jesus's face. Eyes locked on him like my dog, Solo. Nothing keeps the attention of my family's black lab than a ball. We can be at a dog park with 20 dogs running around, and Solo does not care if that ball is in sight. Now, I'm not trying to call you a dog or anything, but Solo is on to something. We don't look to ourselves to faithfully endure. Faithful endurance flows from a clear and healthy view of Jesus with our eyes locked on him through the thick and through the thin. If we didn't get how to run the race with endurance set before us like a good preacher, preacher, the pastor here repeats himself from another angle with the second exhortation which is stated another way. Look at chapter 12, verses three through four. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. We are to give ourselves the careful, deliberative, consistent thought to the one who endured. It matters where your mind is when you are running. I can only imagine the mental battle that goes through the mind of somebody that is running a marathon. In a race, your thought life matters. And notice why. Consider him who endured so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Do you see the logic of the text? The pastor gives his people and us the quintessential strategy to running the race called the Christian life with endurance. Keep your eyes locked on Jesus who faithfully endured. Notice that while the pastor is encouraging our endurance, our endurance is not the center of his intention. I mentioned Luther at the beginning. Here he is at one more at the end. He says this, if I keep looking on myself, I am gone. If we lose sight of Christ and begin to consider our past, we simply go to pieces. The endurance of another is highlighted in this text, namely Jesus. The logic of the passage seems to be that the source of our endurance is not found in ourselves, but in Jesus's endurance. In other words, when we hear the word endure, Our first thought ought to be about Jesus. 
Not only is Jesus' endurance much more important, it is the source of our endurance. Therefore, persevere in keeping your eyes locked on him. There are no days off. Since we are called to run our race every day, we ought to look every day. So how do we look at Christ? You go to this book where he is seen clearly. We can't afford not to. How else do we look at Christ? We go to the church where he is seen through his people. We can't afford not to. Notice the text says, let us run. Run in community, spurring one another on to look at Jesus together. Tim Keller recently tweeted this. By praying with friends and others, you will be able to hear and see facets of Jesus that you have not yet perceived. Brothers and sisters, there will be days of your race when you will be called upon to help another brother or sister look at Jesus. And there will be days when they will help you see Jesus through the foggy fatigue of faith. Let's make it our aim to strive together to keep our eyes on the prize. Let's pray. Father, I pray, as I did in the beginning, that your spirit was at work to take your word and to speak specifically to the hearts of my brothers and sisters and an encouragement to cast their eyes upon the one who was better and to run the race that you have sovereignly put in front of them. I pray, Father, that you would continue to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight and that you, Father, would cause your son to loom so large on the horizon of our sky that we would run every single day until we receive him as a prize. We give you glory for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.